Happy to be back with you guys after missing last week. I don't like to miss, but at times it is needed. Just for my own mental, physical, emotional, spiritual health to have a little bit of time off. So special thanks to Matt Daniels for filling in last week. Can you guys show your appreciation for Matt? I know last week was awesome and it's never an issue whatsoever for me to trust him with you guys while I'm gone. So I'm super thankful for his friendship and their relationship and what he means to me and having somebody like that that I know can fill in at any given moment and give you guys the truth and the fullness of God's word. I need you to catch up with me in 1 John tonight. And how, As you're flipping there, I kind of want to ask a question. How many of you really prefer realness? Like, I mean, you just prefer authenticity. You want real, you want genuine. Most people prefer real. Most people prefer authentic. Most people don't want to copy. We don't want a fabrication. We don't want something that's fake. I personally really like for things to be authentic. It's just a better quality. It's a better brand, whatever. And there are some specific things, like I'm not brand value on everything. Like I can go to Walmart right now and we can great value that sucker up with the best of them. I'm fine with that. But there are some things that I don't want like the knockoff brand in. Some things I want the real thing. Some things I want true authentic value. One of those things for me in specific would be sunglasses. I don't like cheap sunglasses. I do a lot of stuff outdoors. I do a lot of fishing as you guys that are getting to know me better or finding out more and more so, like I, I will splurge on a really good, authentic pair of sunglasses. Like when I was growing up, I remember like the big deal then were Oakleys. Do any of y'all remember Oakleys? They were a big deal in the sunglass world for a little while. But there was a company out there that would make a real close copy of Oakley sunglasses, but they weren't real. And a lot of people would walk around wearing these fake Oakley sunglasses, and we had a term for them. They were Folkleys, fake Oakley sunglasses. They weren't the real thing. Now, they looked like the real thing, but when it came down to the authenticity of it, they were just fakes. They were copies. Something else that I want to be authentic is Hispanic food. I want authentic, real Hispanic food. Now, that's hard to find here in America. We have Mexican restaurants everywhere, but a lot of those Mexican restaurants have been like Americanized because we as Americans, we think we're partaking in authentic Hispanic food, but we're really not. They're kind of catering to our diet. Like I do realize like in real Hispanic countries, like flour tortillas don't exist. They make those jokers out of corn. Like corn tortillas are the real thing. There's a Mexican restaurant in town, kind of just a shameless plug for them, but Polito Loco, I know y'all are familiar with them. Taco Tuesdays, you can get corn tortillas at that place. That's authentic, like Mexican food. I remember the first time that me and Ashley went to Guatemala with a, a missionary partner that we had down there. And they took us around to some of the good restaurants in that town. Like I have never had Hispanic food that was that good. I mean, like you, you get like, like, chicken fajitas or something, like they run out back and grab that chicken off the ground. And it's like, Bruh! and they throw it on there. Like, I mean, that is authentic, real Hispanic food. Autographs. 
How many of you are bigger on memorabilia? If you're going to get an autograph, you're going to get something that's signed, you want the autograph to be authentic. You don't want something that's been copied and pasted onto whatever it is that you're getting. Like You want it to be authentic. I asked a couple of buddies what they wanted authenticity in as well, and one of them gave me this as his response, relationships. Don't nobody want no fake friends. We want authentic relationships. We want people that are real in our friendships. I asked another buddy, I said, what's something that you want authentic? He said, soft drinks. Like he's drinking Mountain Dew, he ain't buying the Mountain Lightning. Dr. Pepper, not Dr. Thunder. You know, like he, he wants authentic soft drinks, authentic Cokes. I asked another buddy, what's something that you want to be authentic? He said, apologies. I want a real authentic apology. If somebody's going to take the time to say they're sorry or ask for forgiveness for a wrong done, I want that to be real. I want that to be authentic. And those of us that have siblings, we can go for that, right? Like, how many of you gave an apology to your sibling that was anything but authentic because your parents told you to go and apologize? Go tell your sister you're sorry. Sorry. There's nothing authentic about it. But most of us, if we're going to be given an apology for a pain that's been caused in our lives, we want that to be authentic. That being said... The reason why I think we appreciate the authentic so much is because our world is full of fakes. Our world is full of things that aren't genuine. Our world is full of things that are knockoffs, that are cheap, that are copies. And one thing in particular that I think I desire to be authentic more than anything else is love. I want love and the way in which I experience it and the way in which it is shown to me to be authentic. I don't want love to be fake. I don't want love to be fabricated. I don't want love to be forced. I want love to be real. I want it to be genuine. Romans 12, 9, as a matter of fact, as Paul is speaking to those believers, he says this. He says, let love be genuine. You know, there's a lot of fake love in our world. But God in his word shows us what genuine love is, what it looks like, what it feels like, what it expects, what it demands. And so for the next few weeks, our messages are going to be built off of the premise of real love. The real love that God has for us. The real love that we should have for him. The real love we should have for others. One that's not fake or fabricated, but one that is authentic and genuine. We're going to spend some time over the next few weeks talking about real love together. I'm going to kick that off in 1 John chapter 1. And I'm just going to read, starting in chapter 1, quite a few verses. So just follow along with me. It says in verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So as John, who is the writer here, begins talking about the reality of Jesus in his own life, but also the reality of Jesus in the life of the other apostles, this is what he has to say about the living Christ. He says, we have seen him. We have heard him. We have looked upon him. We have even touched him. And we testify to the truth that Jesus truly is the Son of God because we've witnessed it firsthand. See, Jesus for them wasn't just some story. It just wasn't some narrative. It wasn't some secondhand account of somebody that had heard of this man walking around on the face of the earth doing amazing, miraculous things and teaching things in a way in which they had never been taught before. For them, it was real. It was a firsthand account. He says the the word of God became flesh and it had dwelt among us and we saw him. We heard him. We looked upon him. We hung out with him. We put our arms around him. We felt his hug and his embrace and we testify to you guys firsthand that he truly was the son of God sent to be the savior of the world, to be the what he describes as the propitiation for our sins. Everybody say propitiation. I like how you just kind of eased into it. Propitiation. You know what that means? It's an amazing word that shows us that Jesus took God's wrath and turned it into our favor. So John says Jesus came to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus came to absorb God's wrath so that we could experience God's favor if we surrender our lives unto his lordship. That's an amazing thing that Christ did for us. He gave his life to redeem and to save. He gave his life so that we could be snatched from hell and solidified in heaven. That's a glorious, glorious savior that we have that he would sacrifice his life, that he would desire, that he would pursue us, John is saying, that's real love. That's the real thing. You want to know what real love is? You want to know what real love looks like? Real love looks like God himself putting on flesh and coming to this earth to die a gruesome, horrifying death upon a cross so that his blood could be shed so that wretched sinners like me and like you could have, instead of God's wrath, God's favor bestowed upon our life. That's awesome. 
And for those of us who have believed in faith upon Jesus and have given our lives to him, we have begun to understand the amazing love that he has for us. And the thing is, our understanding of that becomes greater and greater with each day that we choose to dive deeper and deeper into it. The depths of God's love can never be plunged to the bottom of. And so it's incredible to think that, like we were singing a little while ago, God really loves us. Do you understand that? God really loves us. Do me a favor. Find somebody beside you and tell them, God really loves you. No, like you've got to understand, God really loves you. God really loves you. God loves you in spite of you. And when I think about my own self, when I think about my own life, when I think about the reality of how true God's word is when it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and I think of how short I have fallen of God's glory, that he would love me in spite of me has to be a real love. It's easy to love those that are easily loved. Christ's love remains steadfast for us in our most difficult, lovable moments. It never changes and it never varies. That's the real love that he has for us. And that's the love that for those of us who have come to know him, like John says here, that we begin to understand in an even greater way day by day how much he really does love us. But listen to me. Love received must become love reciprocated. Because of God's great love for us, we then in turn are to love him in that same way back. You know what the greatest command is, right? To love the Lord your God with everything that you have. So tonight, that's what I want us to talk about a little bit even further. I want to talk about a real love for God. Let's talk about a real love for God. God really loves us, but do we really love him? And to find answers to that, we've got to self-diagnose a little bit tonight. And self-diagnosing is not anything that I would ever encourage any of you to do. Like how many of you are those people that once you experience symptoms from something, the first thing you do is you get on Google and you Google those symptoms, and then all of a sudden you've got cancer and about two weeks to live. Self-diagnosis is not anything that I would ever necessarily encourage when it comes to your actual health. Go see a doctor, somebody that's trained, a medical expert that can help diagnose whatever it is that you truly have. But when it comes to our spiritual health, yes, we 100% have to self-diagnose from time to time. And tonight can be one of those nights. So let's look at a real love for God. A real love for God, this is like an unparalleled moment for me in my preaching history in the fact that I have one point to this message. One. And it's this, a a real love for God is exemplified in keeping his commands. That simple. John explains to us that those who are in Christ live as he lived. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now, flip over to 1 John chapter 5 for just a second, and let's look at a couple of verses there to kind of further show us 
the reality of this point. So in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 2, John writes this, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So the love of God is shown by us keeping his commandments. So a real love for God is found in us doing what he has told us to do and living how he has told us to live. Now, I need you to listen to me here for just a moment. A lot of people have a religious love for God, but that's not a real love for God. They obey the best that they can. They may even live morally good lives. They may even give of their time, their energy, their money, their resources. They may serve. They may go on mission trips. They may sing worship songs, be on a praise team or whatever. But so many people do that out of legalism. You know what that is? That's obligation. And obligation is not love. Obligation is law. And so, so many people have a religious love for God. The Pharisees during Jesus' time on the earth were known to have what was described as a zeal for God. You know what zeal is? It's passion, it's desire, it's pursuit. They had a, a zeal for God. They had a religious love for God, but they didn't care anything about Jesus. They had no love for him or his words or his commands, and thus to not love Jesus is to not love the Father. So they had all kinds of religious love. They had all kinds of religious zeal. They lived morally good lives. They memorized more Bible verses than anybody. They could pray as eloquently as anyone when they stood up to do so. They knew how to exposit and to teach Scripture. But they didn't love God. They didn't have a real love for Him. Real love doesn't operate in such a way. To have obligation and to, to do things because we know that's what we're supposed to be doing because that's what we're obligated to do or because those are the hoops that we know we're necessarily supposed to jump through. Real love doesn't operate like that. Real love operates in this way. Because I love him, I obey him. And I obey him because I love him. It's not out of obligation. It's out of a true obedience from a heart that has been transformed and changed by the supernatural renewing and restoration of Christ's love upon my life. I don't obey him because I'm obligated to. I obey him because I love him because he loved me. And so my obedience stems out of my love for him and what I know he has done to redeem my soul. If we really love God, it's just this simple. We will keep his commandments. And so with that, there's a few more specific things that we need to draw out of this. And so I really had one main point, but I've got a couple of things kind of underneath that that I want to draw out a little bit more in detail. So what it means to keep his commands, to do so is to hold an obedience to his word. So if you go back and look at in chapter 2 where we started at of 1 John, and we look back in verse 4, he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So first things first, John points out that if we make the claim to know God, yet our lives are found to not be keeping his commandments, he describes us as liars, and the truth is not in us. So don't complicate it any more than it is complicated. To say that we know God and yet not keep his commands 
does not line up. It makes us out to be liars. It makes us out to be deceivers. And not just deceivers of the people around us, but deceivers of ourselves as well. So to say that we love God but not keep his commandments, John says point blank. And one thing I love about John is he's very practical and he's very straightforward and to the point. Like he doesn't beat around the bush. Like John would offend a lot of people in today's culture. He basically comes right out and says, aside from all the fluff, if you say you love God but you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. Plain and simple. And the same is true in our lives. If we say we love God but we don't keep his commandments, we don't consistently obey him, then I'm sorry, but there's serious reason to doubt whether we truly know him at all or not. God takes obedience to his commands very, very seriously. Have we lost sight of that? So serious does he take obedience to his commands that in the Old Testament, as a matter of fact, when he was handing down the Ten Commandments to Moses, he gave specific instructions to Moses to tell the people, don't even touch the mountain, because if you do, you're going to die. As he was handing down his law. God takes obedience to his commands very very, very seriously. And I feel like we've gotten ourselves in a bad position as a people of God because we treat God's commands just so flippantly. As if there's option on whether or not we are to obey them. And that is clearly not the mandate that God has given when it comes to the handing down and the obeying of his word. Jesus, after finishing his Sermon on the Mount, where he outlined many commands for his followers to abide by. He says this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears it does not do them. It's like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So watch what takes place here, because it's super important that you don't miss this, because I feel like it applies to so many people currently. There were people confessing Jesus is Lord. So Jesus turns around and he says to these people, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you to do? So for Jesus to turn around and say this to this crowd of people insinuates the fact that there were people in that crowd that were confessing him as being Lord over their lives, yet Jesus saw disobedience in their lives. He says, you're calling me Lord, but I've got a question. Why are you calling me such and yet not doing what I have commanded you to do? And so as Jesus says this, it gives us a glimpse into what he means by that response. So Jesus' response to these people shows us that confession without obedience is worthless. Confess all you want to. Lord, Lord. But if there is no obedience to follow your confession, it's worthless. And he shows us just how worthless it is because he compares it to a house that fell when the waters rose against it. Why? Because their confession had no foundation. And so many people now make a confession with no foundation 
And that's why after life gets difficult, after things get hard, after tribulations come, after they take a stand underneath the banner of Jesus for a little while, but persecution takes place, they immediately fall back and they falter and they fade. And then all of a sudden they no longer want to have anything to do with Jesus anymore. Our confession must have a foundation, and the foundation is obedience to what he has called us to do. We cannot have a real love for God if we don't live in obedience to God. So what has he commanded us to do? Well, a lot. And the list is far too exhaustive to go through tonight. He, he has commanded us to serve. He's commanded us to share. He's commanded us to go and to proclaim, to care for those in need, to defend the weak. He's commanded us to love and to be compassionate and to forgive. He's also commanded us, though, to have nothing to do with darkness, to use our bodies for righteousness and holy living, to abstain from fleshly desires and passions, to control our tongues and our attitudes. All these things are things that he has commanded us to do, to be in all ways set apart from the world around us and holy unto him. We're to live different, we're to act different, we're to speak different, we're to think different because he commanded us to do so. Now that's a lot, a whole lot to live up to. And something that is impossible for us to do without help from him. But he has given us help. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. But here's the thing here. I want to expose something before we go a little bit further. I want to expose one of the greatest lies of the devil. One of the greatest lies of the devil is to take God's commands and make them seem constraining. The devil loves to take God's commands and make them seem constraining, as if God doesn't want you to experience life at its best. So the devil will sweep in and he will plant these falsities, these lies, these deceptions in our minds, in our hearts, saying, oh, you don't want to give your life to Christ, or you don't, want to, you don't want to follow his word, you don't want to do all those things, because if you do all that, I mean, look at all those things that he's laid out. Look at all those rules, look at all those regulations, look at all those principles that you're to abide by. If you give yourself over to that, you're never going to experience real life. You're never going to experience all the things the world has for you to experience. You're not going to be able to have any fun. You're not going to be able to experience any joy or any happiness. Look at all the things that you're going to miss out if you commit yourself to obeying God's words. Let me tell you what God is. God's a buzzkill. God doesn't want you to enjoy the things that this world has to offer. These are the lies. These are the deceptions that he will speak into our lives and into our minds wanting us to buy in to the reality that God doesn't know what's best for us. He did this at the very beginning in the garden. When he tempted Adam and Eve, God says, that all the garden is yours. Do as you please. Enjoy every single aspect of it. I just have one rule. Don't mess with that tree. And then here comes the devil, sliding up in there. Strikes up a conversation with Eve. Eve. My girl, what's up? Let's talk for a second. What was it that God said not to do? Oh, man, God said we could enjoy everything in the garden. It's all ours. We can go anywhere we want. We can do anything we want to do. We can enjoy all the things that we have to enjoy. He just told us not to go over there and mess with that tree. Oh, Eve, did God really say that? Did God really say not to go over there and mess with that tree? Well, yeah, I mean, talking snake, he did. 
Uh, I'll tell you why he said that, though, Eve. Let me be real. I'll be real with you because God don't want to be real with you. God only said that because he knows that if you go over there and eat from that tree, you'll become like him. And he knows that you'll get to enjoy things on a far greater level. The moment Eve heard that, she thought, maybe you're right, talking snake. Maybe God does want me to miss out. There is something greater for me to experience that he's keeping from me. Look what happened from there. Go back over to chapter 5. I want you to see something in verse 3. It says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. The second part of this verse is so key. His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. The devil wants to tell you that God's commands are constraining, but let me tell you the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is that God's commands aren't restrictive, they're protective. God puts them in place because he knows that living within them is what produces abundant life, not living outside of them. God puts his commands in place to protect us as his children, to keep us from experiencing the heartache that we shouldn't have felt by diving into an intimate relationship before we went into marriage. God puts his commands in place to keep us from experiencing the pain of a friend group that we thought would be there with us because they were our true friends, yet in our moment of most difficult need, everybody was gone. God puts those things in place to protect us from giving ourselves into worldly passions and desires that will only lead us into places of depression and anxiety and suicidal tendencies and thoughts. You know whose same voice it is that whispers in your mind that your life doesn't matter after telling you how life can matter? It's the same one. It's the same one. It's the same one. The same voice that deceived you into thinking that God's trying to keep you from experiencing everything this world has to offer is the same voice that will show up after you have experienced everything this world has to offer and tell you that this life has nothing for you and you have nothing for this life, so why don't you just end yours? God's commands are not restrictive. They are protective, and living within them is what produces abundant life for Life is far more abundant. Listen to me. Life is far more abundant when we live in accordance to God's word. Disobedience. Disobedience has a whole other experience, a whole other meaning for a child of God. You know what I found to be true about disobedience in my life as a follower of Jesus? It's that disobedience is disorienting. It's like not hearing the instructions for an assignment. You ever been there? You ever been chatting it up in class or on your phone or something like that, and the professor gives out the assignment and everybody gets it, but you didn't? 
And all of a sudden, you come snapping out of that trance of whatever it is that you had going on, and everybody's like busy at work writing things down, and you're like, what happened? What happened? What happened? What do we do? What? Hey, what do you say? And everybody's like, shh. And you're like freaking out because you're like, I didn't hear what we're supposed to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What do I do? Uh, I'm not going to make an A. I'm going to make an F, and my 4.0 is going to be blown, and my parents are going to hate me, and I'm going to get kicked out of college, and I'm never going to get a job. Like everything begins to like crash in because you didn't hear the instructions. And you're not sure what you're supposed to do next, and you're all disoriented, and you're like, all of a sudden, a failure. Like, you get a vision of the exam. You made like a four on it because you wrote your name on the paper, all because you didn't hear the instructions, and you're disoriented. You don't know what from down. You don't know if you're supposed to go left. You're supposed to go right. Do I turn my computer on? Do I turn my computer off? Do I go to page 40? Do I go to page 49? It's disorienting. We don't know what to do. In the same way, when we as children of God get outside of his word, things get disorienting for us. So many people that I counsel that are struggling with hearing the voice of God, that are struggling with direction and his past and his purposes and his plans, so much of it I trace back to the reality that there's some form of disobedience in their life. Disobedience as a believer is probably one of the reasons why you're struggling with so much confusion. So much anxiety, so much doubt, so much isolation in your life. I'm not saying that it's always the cause, but I think it is a cause that gets overlooked a lot. When we get outside of God's word and we lose sight of the instructions that he has given us, it's disorienting for us. We're treading water that we're not supposed to be in. So of course we're not going to know what to do or where to turn. In John chapter 14, I want you to listen to what Jesus has to say in several different verses. I'm going to look at verse 14, or excuse me, verse 15, verse 21, and verse 23. But Jesus says this, look how repetitive it is. Verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If we really love him, We'll obey his words. Second part of this is that our love for him is exemplified through our obedience to his commands, but it's not just obedience to his word. It's denial of our ways. If you go back in 1 John chapter 2, we look at verse 6. He says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The way that Jesus walked while on this earth is not the same way we naturally want to walk in our flesh. When we surrender our lives to him, our flesh is crucified with him. It's dead. Listen to me. That does not mean that we're no longer tempted to rebel. That doesn't mean that we still don't battle fleshly desires that are against God and against his word. God's word tells us that our flesh has passions that go against what he has commanded. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 talks about how our flesh and the spirit of God are opposed to each other so that it keeps us from doing the things that we desire to do. It is that like, it's that typical situation. Like you ever been in the store and you see the parents and they've got their kid with them and like you can tell like they're, they're having a hard time getting him to mind, getting him to obey. And you hear mom or dad look at the kid and they tell them, don't you get that toy off the shelf? And the kid looks back at them and they say it again. I mean it, don't you get that toy off the shelf? And they get a little bit closer and they're still looking back. Don't you get don't. And they start reaching for the toy. Don't you get that? I'm telling you, if you take that toy off that shelf, I'm going to bust your back end. 
And the kid whoop, goes ahead and grabs the toy, knowing that his parents were telling him, don't you take that toy off the shelf. But it's like, it's like we can't help it. It is our built-in nature. It's like, it's like the don't push the red button thing. We would have never thought to push the red button. But the moment somebody told us not to push it, everything inside of us wanted to push that button. That kid may not have wanted to get the toy off the shelf, but the moment the command was given, don't take that toy off the shelf, everything inside of that kid wants to walk over there and get it. It is our sinful, fleshly nature that ever just wants to rebel against whatever it is God tells us not to do. Our flesh desires things that are against God. Listen, there are things that my flesh desires. There are things that my flesh wants to indulge in at times that I know God has told me to not have any part in. Can you relate to this? Am I the only person in here like this? There are things that you know are strictly forbidden in God's word that we are to abstain from, that we are to flee from, Yet in the moment when we are tempted by them, we can't help but indulge or want to indulge in. Flesh is always battling against the Spirit. There are things that, that cause us to not walk in the way in which He walked, in the way in which He has called us to walk in. That's why there has to be a denial of our ways. No matter how bad we want it, no matter how bad we desire it, we refuse it. Why? Because God has commanded it. Because it does not bring him honor and it does not bring him glory. But listen to me. In order to deny our ways, that takes a fight. Romans 7. Go read it sometime. Paul, who we would identify as one of the most amazing Christians to live on the face of the earth, talks about his battle to do the things that he doesn't want to do the desire that he has to not do them, but the reality that he keeps doing those things that he doesn't want to do. He understood that battle. He understood that flesh against the spirit kind of war that took place on a daily basis to not indulge in the things that he knew he was not supposed to indulge in. You know the strongest desire that we have within us is self-desire? You know what self-desire is? Self-desire, by definition, is wanting to please or satisfy ourselves. And that is the strongest desire that any single one of us individually have within us. Self-desire. When Christ is on the earth calling people to come and follow him, you know what turned more of them away than anything else? Christ's call to deny self. When people realize that self must be denied, time and time again, they would turn away. And the same thing today is still what turns more people away from Jesus than anything else. It's the denying of self. When it comes to that, people say, well, sure, I can find a way to serve others. I can find a way to love. I can find a way to be compassionate. I can find a way to, to sacrifice material or possession type things. I can give all those things. I, I could possibly be difficult, but actually not as difficult for some as others, but I can leave family behind. I can do all those things. But then when it comes to the denying self, so many people draw the line there. Oh, hold on. So you're telling me, Jesus, if I follow you, that I can't do the things that I want to do always? I'm out. That's too far. I can't handle that much. 
Why? Because it's the strongest desire within us. What I'm trying to tell you is that denial is a battle that must be fought hard to win. Disobedience can always be traced back to a moment where we refuse to deny self what it wanted. Every single time. Every single disobedient act can be traced back to a moment where we quite simply just refuse to deny ourselves something that we wanted. So we just took it. A moment where we gave in after a half-hearted fight, or in all honesty, no fight at all. Can I challenge you a little bit? It's time that we as men and women of God got some fight back in us. Where we start fighting back against our own selfish ways, against our own wants, and start fighting for the life of righteousness that honors our God that he has called us to, where it doesn't matter how I feel, it doesn't matter what I want, it doesn't even matter what I think, it only matters what God has said. There's too little fight left in the people of God, it seems like, when it comes to living a righteous way. And I'm not going to ask you to answer the question, but how many of you would honestly admit to the reality that you give in way too easy? And you give up way too easy. And there are things in your life that you fight way harder for because they have to do with self instead of righteousness. We've got to get back to fighting to deny ourselves so that we can live in obedience unto God. If we really love God, we will strive to walk as he walked and always. If you love me, you will keep my commands. We're called to be a people of love. We're called to be a people of righteousness. We're called to forgiveness and peace and grace and mercy and compassion and service and all those things, but listen to me, we're also called to be a people of obedience. Are you loving God in that way? A real love of God is exemplified in keeping his commands. Hey, this is Trey Mitchell, college and young adult pastor. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. It's our prayer that God uses these messages in a way that challenge and encourage you to live for his glory. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, we would love to help you with making that decision. Just reach out to us through our webpage at underwoodbaptist.org. Be sure to check back in with us next week as we again encounter God through his word here at Life.